1: Hello, I'm Tom
2: Butler. I'm Brendan Duffy. And I'm Tom Wheatley. And, and you're, you're listening, listening to the, the James Bond A
3: to Z podcast.
1: Join us as three lifelong 007 fans go on a journey of discovery. We're on a mission to discover everything we can about cinema's greatest spy films
2: by learning about the people who made them in front of the camera and behind. The James Bond A to Z podcast is in no way affiliated with James Bond. Eon, or the Fleming Estate. We've researched each episode as extensively as we can, but our information does come from a range of sources. We do our best to make sure the information is accurate, but sometimes we can get it wrong. If you want to correct us on something, or add some more detail, email us at podcast at jamesbond8z.co.uk.
1: Hello and welcome to the James Bond to z podcast. On this episode, F is for Fleming, Ian Fleming, the man who created James Bond. My name is Tom Butler, and joining me as we explore the life and career of Ian Lancaster Fleming is a man who is well acquainted with a bit of sex, sadism and snobbery. It's Mr. Brendan Duffy.
3: Excellent. Hello.
1: <laughs> and that other salty seaman, Commander Tom Wheatley. <laughs> this is better than mine. <laughs> <laughs> feel a bit short there. Huh? <laughs> well, Commander. Um, you're a commander.
2: But- I'm just a mister. He's just a mister. That's true. That's true. That's accurate.
1: So obviously there is enough on the life of Ian Fleming to fill an entire podcast series. And, you know, there's many great biographies that are written about him. So just to note that this podcast really will just be scratching the surface of Ian Fleming's life and career, which is quite a story to be told. But we'll try and just focus on the aspects of Fleming's life um, as they relate to the James Bond films, because let's not forget this podcast is about the James Bond films not about the books. So without further ado, let's let's get stuck into Ian Fleming.
3: So let's go all the way back to 1908, May the 28th. Ian Lancaster Fleming was born in Mayfair in London. And he's born into wealth because his grandfather, Robert, had traveled from Scotland down to London in the late 19th century. He'd made a massive fortune through Scottish American investment company, which he'd co-founded. And he'd also established his own bank called Robert Fleming and co. And these two ventures were massively prosperous. So this enabled the Fleming family to buy land in Oxfordshire. And also they had a house in Grosvenor square in London so Robert had two sons, Valentine and Philip. Valentine went on to become a successful barrister. He married Evelyn Beatrice St Croix Rose and then they had four sons, Peter, Ian, Richard and Michael. And that was over a short space of 6 years and during this time Valentine was elected as Member of Parliament for Henley in Oxfordshire. And then World War 1 breaks out and the family spend their time so at, uh, young Ian spends his time at Braziers Park, their home near Wallingford in Oxford, and also in Hampstead Heath in North London. In World War One, sadly, Ian's father was killed whilst in action on the Western Front in 1917. And that was only a week before Ian was about to turn nine. So very young. He's lost his father. Valentine's obituary was written by Winston Churchill and... Because Valentine had had an estate in Scotland, he was commemorated on the Glenelg War Memorial. So that's Ian Fleming's very early life. Yeah, he's born into wealth, but it's not overly happy. You know, he's lost his father at nine. So I think I
1: think his father's bank's still going. I think I could be wrong. It's it's an investment firm, but
3: yeah, I had a look. It is part. It's part of a bigger. yeah. uh, Yeah, it's part of a bigger. Firm now, and they're worth billions. But yeah, this st- it's still going. Yeah. So the wealth that
2: the Fleming family had meant that Fleming went to Eton College. He went there from 1921 to 1927, and by all accounts, he wasn't particularly the academic at school, but he was very good at athletics. He won the Victor Ludorum. Have you ever heard of this before, Victor Ludorum? Yeah, it's like a public
1: school type thing, isn't
2: it? Yeah, it's like I think we had one. Ask had the valedictorian award, didn't we? But this, So he won that twice, which I think basically means he was very good at lots of different sports. And he won that in 1925 and 1927. While he was there, he also edited the school magazine called The Wyvern. And it was in The Wyvern that he had his first short story published called The Ordeal of Carol St. George. Interestingly, there was a a housemaster called E.V. Slater, who he didn't get on particularly well with. By all records, it seemed that Slater thought that Fleming was a little bit wayward. Uh, he didn't like various aspects of his personality. He had a really expensive car, had lots of relationships with women, things like that, which uh, Slater didn't seem to like very much. So he was meant to have played a part in getting Fleming to leave the school early to go on to a special course that would allow him to get into the Royal Military College at Sandhurst. But he didn't spend very long at Sandhurst. Uh, he left in 1927, so the same year that he left Eton and uh, the reason for that was because he contracted gonorrhea which suggests that he was probably a little bit wayward with the women uh, around that time uh, and it apparently was a very rare thing for a sandhurst cadet uh, cadet to actually get a venereal disease so
1: um, yeah quite a big scandal for him at the time i think yes I'm not surprised in that same year he
2: his aim was to get into the into the foreign office so his mother sent him to a place called ten uh, tennerhof Uh, to a private school, which was placed in Kitzbühel in Austria. And that was run by a former British spy called Ernan Forbes Dennis and uh, his wife, um, Phyllis Bottom, uh, who was a novelist at the time. And while he was there, he he learned languages. He he became fluent in German and French or got very good at German and French. Uh, And it seemed that he actually enjoyed his time there. So um, in a letter he wrote to his friend, he said uh, he called it that golden time when the sun always shone. Uh after that he then studied at briefly at the Munich University uh and the University of Geneva. And while he was in Geneva, he had a had a romance uh with a lady called Monique Pancho de Bottens, and they became engaged uh before he came back to London in nineteen thirty one. Uh and then he took his Foreign Office exam. But apparently he didn't didn't get him a job afterwards.
1: Yeah, he um He got a pass in his foreign office exam and he came 25th out of 62 candidates, but was not offered a job. Only three of the uh, people who took the test were actually offered jobs. I think generally people would take the exam several times until they were able to get to the top and make their way into the foreign office. But Fleming decided that he wanted to go into work, or at least his mother insisted that he go into work. So he wrote a letter to the head of Reuters, the newswire, news agency, uh, to ask for a job. Sir Roderick Jones, who was the head of Reuters at the time, he was impressed by the letter that he was sent by Ian Fleming. And also he was charmed by his social presence. You know, he came from a very rich family and he felt like that could open doors for a young man at Reuters. So he offered him a job. And he started at Reuters in October 1931 on an unpaid one month trial. And then he was offered a full time job on £150 a year. And his main task was translating and rewriting stories that were sent in by foreign correspondences. Um, He also helped to refresh some pre-written obituaries. And then also, as suggested when he was offered the job, he also was used to help bringing new trade through his connections as well. A few things that he did. while He was at Reuters. He went to Munich to report on some motor trials, and he was a navigator with a, a, a driver on on an expedition across the Alps. He also reported on the elections in Germany, the Reichstag elections, when Hitler was standing for election, uh, by monitoring radio t- transmissions in Switzerland. With his, you know, his fluency in foreign languages really coming into uh, into their own here. He also um, helped break a story. About six engineers, who British engineers, who'd been arrested in Moscow. And that became an international incident because it threatened trade between Russia and, and Britain. And he was actually sent to Moscow to cover the trial. So as you can see, he's sort of jet setting already at this sort of young age. He was then offered a lucrative post in Shanghai uh, by Reuters, but he declined that. Uh, instead, he offered his resignation um, and in an interview not long before he actually died later on, he, he called his time at Reuters the most exciting time of my life and he was lured away by money. So he told his boss at the time, it's a beastly idea giving up all the fun of life for money, but I hope to be able to make a packet and then get out and come back into journalism from the other side. Um, he had been tempted away by a position at a company called Cull and Company uh, in the in the city. So it was a stockbroker's job and he'd been promised a partnership in the firm when one of the senior partners retired. And this came via a lady that he was romancing at the time, I believe. So his grandfather, Robert, the rich one we talked about, he died in 1933 and he'd actually left nothing to Eve and her sons. So Ian Fleming at this point was put under pressure by his mother to earn some money for himself and hence why he went into becoming a stockbroker. Turns out he wasn't very good at being a stockbroker. He wasn't very good at making money. Later on, he said he just preferred to do things that were creatively um, enjoyable rather than just chasing after chasing after money. But being a stockbroker suited his lifestyle. You know, he was a young man about town. He was into going to uh, private members clubs, going out golfing. But in 1935, it was clear he didn't have a a future at Cullen Company because the man who was going to retire and make him a partner decided to stay on for longer. So he left and joined a company called Rowan Pittman where he stayed for four years. And it was at Rowan Pittman where he started to become interested in the field of intelligence as war was, with Germany was sort of beginning to loom on the horizon. So it was during a trip to Switzerland that he met a man called Comrade O'Brien French, who was a, a distinguished British spy, someone who many people think helped to inspire James Bond. And he also sort of saw the potential in Fleming in joining in the intelligence uh, agency as war was, was looming it's around this time in 1939 that Ian started a relationship with a lady called Anne Charteris who will loom large in the story as the, as, as we go on. But in May of 1939, as war was, was on the horizon, Ian Fleming was invited to meet with a man called Admiral John Godfrey about a job in Naval intelligence.
3: Yeah. So Admiral John Godfrey was uh, the director of Naval intelligence in the Royal Navy, and he needed a personal assistant And he felt that Ian Fleming was the right person for the job. He'd seen something in this. uh, He was 31 at the time. He'd seen something in him that others just hadn't. And so Fleming was commissioned into the Royal Navy Volunteer Reserve in July 1939 as lieutenant. But he was quickly promoted to commander after hostilities began um, in September of that year. So pretty quickly rising through the ranks there. He was Godfrey's liaison and he worked with many other government departments. And that would be the secret intelligence service, the joint intelligence committee, the special operations executive and the political warfare executive. So he coordinated, uh, the relationship between the code breaking team at Bletchley park and, um, he actually came up with a lot of the intelligence operations, one that was known as Trout Memo, which it compared the the necessity for the deception of an enemy. And he also, he thought of a way to get uh, Germany's Enigma code, all the code books and all the machines. So it was called Operation Ruthless, where they would use a, a captured German bomber they would use that, and they would man it with English crew who were disguised as members of the Luftwaffe, and and then they'd put it in the English Channel, and then the the German the Germans would go and rescue that, um, and then they would basically sabotage it and overpower the Germans and and try and then bring the codebook back. It wasn't followed through though. I think the RAF said it wouldn't work because the the plane would sink. So. In December 1941, Ian Fleming was liaising with Colonel Donovan, also known as Wild Bill, um, and that was the president's special representative for intelligence. He made a visit to America where he assisted in drafting the blueprint for the Office of the Coordinator of Information, which then led to the Office of Strategic Services and then eventually the CIA. So... In the very early days of, of the, the invention of the CIA, Fleming is there. found quite impressive, to be, to be honest, that he Acidly, was there. Yeah. yeah. So then after that, he was placed in charge of Operation Goldeneye. And this was um, a plan to maintain a big network of spies in Spain so that they could keep in contact with agents in Gibraltar uh, just in case it fell to the Nazis. And then it was to ensure that the, the Germans weren't able to set up Equipment on the in the Strait of Gibraltar, which would be a massive threat to the allies so yeah that that was that was what he did there for a while. Then it was closed down in august nineteen forty three because it sort of it turned and it looked like the allies were, were sort of pulling through at that point so in nineteen forty two another big contribution of Fleming's he created the number thirty commando unit known as thirty assault Unit a group of specialist troops who went with soldiers on raids and their purpose was to obtain intelligence and during this time his friend robert harling who was his officer he asked fleming about what what his plan was after the war and he said i'm going to write the spy story to end all spy stories so pretty early on that where sort of the um seen green shoots of what he intends to do post-war. So even after Admiral Godfrey had been replaced as head of naval intelligence, uh, Fleming continued and he went from strength to strength. The unit grew for um, 30 assault unit and it played a critical role in something called Operation Overlord, which was the Allied invasion of Europe uh, in 1944. Um, Gradually, as, as time went on, he has less day-to-day involvement with uh, 30 assault unit and after June 1944 he's sitting on a committee which was called Target Force or T-Force and it was their job to guard and secure documents and equipment alongside the combat and intelligence um, after the towns and ports were liberated from the enemy. During this time he attended a naval conference in 1943 And he visited Jamaica, where he stayed with his friend Ivor Bryce, who I think we've mentioned in previous podcasts. They stayed in the Blue Mountains. And this is where Fleming falls in love with Jamaica, basically. He decides that's where he wants to be, and that's where he wants to write. So he's already decided he wants to write spy stories. Now he's visited Jamaica, and he's falling in love, and he knows where he wants to do it. But his friend Ivor Bryce was convinced Fleming didn't have a good time because the weather was poor. And he told Bryce... You know, Ivor, I've made a great decision. When we have won this blasted war, I'm going to live in Jamaica. Just live in Jamaica and lap it up and swim in the sea and write books. So there we go. Really impressive time during the war for him. Incredible achievements.
1: So so many amazing stories of him in the war. Mm. I mean, there's books and books
3: about it. But um, Yeah, we, we've literally only covered a few stories because it's this, yeah, it's incredible amount.
2: Certainly a busy man. Mm. Yeah.
1: <laughs> There's a film coming out um, at Christmas or around Christmas or, or New Year called Operation Mint Me about a story that he's involved with, about where they washed a corpse up on a beach with false documents to claim to, to show that the Allies were going to land in Italy rather than in France <clears throat> to try and uh, mislead the uh, the enemy forces. But yeah, just some wow. amazing stories and things that he was involved with. Mm. Um, yeah, amazing.
2: So as Fleming's time in the armed forces draws to an end, he demobilizes in 1945, and he starts working in real jobs again. Uh, the first job he does, he works as a foreign manager for the Kemsley Newspaper Group, which is owned, which owned the Sunday Times at, the, at that time. Uh, and his role there was to manage the worldwide network of of all the papers' correspondents. Uh, same time, uh, around that time, he he bought his goldeneye estate in um, in Jamaica. It was fifteen acres, or is fifteen acres. It's on the edge of a cliff, and uh, it has three bedrooms. And it was designed based on a sketch that Fleming had done, which is quite nice. And as part of his contract, or as part of his job for the Sunday Times, he got three months holiday every winter, which he would always take in Jamaica. Which sounds like quite a convenient holiday if you've got a place in in Jamaica to go and spend it. You talked about why it was called GoldenEye, fairly obvious based on the stuff he'd done during during the war. Um, and he worked for the paper full-time until 1959, but he, he continued to write articles for, for it afterwards, as well as meetings he was often part of as well. But at this time, he was also Anne Charteris, who we've mentioned. Her first husband died in the war. So after that, she was kind of expecting that Fleming was was going to marry her. Um, but he didn't want to. He he decided he wanted to stay stay single. So she ended up marrying a man, the second Viscount Rothamir, who you may well have heard of. But apparently uh, Fleming continued his affair with her whilst they were married. And how they covered it up was she went to visit him in Jamaica. Um, But she said she was going to uh, see Noel Coward, who was a a friend of hers. Uh, In 1948, she gave birth to Fleming's daughter, Mary, but she died at birth. And then later in 1951, Rothamir divorced uh, Charteris because, because of Ian Fleming. And then Fleming married Charteris in 1952 in Jamaica. And then they had a son called Casper, who was born in August of that year. During this period, it was when Fleming actually sat down and started writing the first Bond novel, Casino Royale. Uh, and he he he's a, talks about it during uh, in an interview where he says that the reason he did it was to distract himself from his impending nuptials. And then apparently both Fleming and Charteris had affairs themselves during their own marriage. Um, she had one with Hugh Gateskell, who was the leader of the Labour Party at the time. And Fleming had a long-term affair um, in Jamaica with Blanche Blackwell, who is the mother of Chris Blackwell, um, who is the guy who r- runs part of or is heavily involved with Island Records.
1: Yeah, he owns GoldenEye you... now as well. Oh, there you go. And we, talk, um, we talked about him on Dr. No. He was uh, yeah, he was a uh, like a coordinator on Dr. No.
2: Oh, there you go. Yeah. Missed that one. And then, of course, Island Records, it's um, famous for many, many people, including Bob Marley in the early days, and then Cat Stevens, Jethro Tull and Justin Bieber. So yeah, that's a little bit about
1: what he was up to over that period. Fun fact about GoldenEye as well, because uh, I've read this really good book recently called GoldenEye by Matthew Parker, where the area that GoldenEye is placed uh, is known to the locals as Golden Head. And that was why also GoldenEye was a apt name for his house. Um, mm. And the house itself was very, very rudimentary when he built it. It was like, it didn't have windows or glass in the windows. It just had shutters on them. Uh, it had a black floor and people would get filthy feet from staying there. It was very, very like primitive place to stay obviously now it's a luxury resort but um back then yeah
3: they they didn't have concrete on on the island did they at the time really like old school methods of building yeah
1: yeah and it's worth noting that jamaica at this time was part of the british empire Hmm. so it felt very much a exotic part of britain for fleming and i think all of this plays into the story of james bond in a big way but yeah, as you mentioned, Fleming's trip to Jamaica at the start of 1952 proved to be a pivotal moment for him. Esmond Rothermere had agreed to the divorce Anne, and she was pregnant again. So when she'd had Fleming's first child, she was actually married to Rothermere and had to pretend that it was his. But actually it was Fleming's. And so this baby unfortunately died after about eight hours, but when she was pregnant again. When in 1952, so her friends, uh, his friends, in fact, advised him against marrying Anne, but Fleming really wanted to do the right thing and agreed to marry her at the age of 44. So in February, a divorce was finalised, and while they were sort of celebrating that, they went on a went to a trip on a spa hotel in Jamaica, and Anne wrote in her diary that this morning Ian started to started to type a book, very good thing. And he'd actually packed a uh, a typewriter and bought a ream of quality paper uh, from New York, ready to write his first ever book. And on the 17th of February, he plucked the name James Bond from the book Birds of the West Indies. We see letter B for more details on the other James Bond. And he started to write Casino Royale. And like you said, his stock answer for being asked about why he was writing the book was it was to take his mind off the hideous spectre of matrimony. So other things that were sort of on his mind, like I said, was the decline of the British Empire and also the defection of the Burgess and McLean spy, two British spies to Russia, which happened in 1951. Ian also had his concerns about his, uh, his money, his financial situation. Now they had a wife and a child to support and obviously his wife has come from a very high society background as well. So his writing would take place in complete solitude because Fleming was a man who liked to spend time on his own. He was a very melancholic sort of character. So his personal space was very important to him. He would close the shutters at Goldeneye and would just spend hours typing away. Anne said that Ian wasn't very anxious to start, but once he'd begun, of course, he found himself enjoying it and finished the book in a great burst of enthusiasm. And he finished writing by the 18th of March. So he'd averaged 2,000 words a day. He said the main thing was to write fast and cursively in order to get narrative speed and Casino Royale would turn out to be his most edited book of his. So it was the most it was the it was the manuscript with the most amendments from the original draft. So talking about his process for writing, he said, I write for about three hours in the morning and I do another hour's work between six and seven in the evening. I never correct anything and I never go back to see what I've written. By following this formula, you write two thousand words a day. And then when he took the, uh, the the first draft back to the UK to shop it around publishers, he called his first draft his dreadful oafish opus. So he had, it felt like he knew that what he was writing was pulpy fodder, let's say. So he did find a publisher, and it the book was published uh, in hardback in on the thirteenth of April, nineteen fifty three, and the first run of four thousand seven hundred copies sold out in a month. Then the second and third runs also ran out and his publisher, Jonathan Cape, offered him a deal for a further three books. Uh, Casino Hour was w- well reviewed and it was published in the US a year later, but the sales were quite poor. And it was also re- released under another title in the US, at You Asked For It, which I thought was quite a fun title.
3: So in, in terms of his work, he has said, while thrillers might not be literature with a capital L, it's possible to write what I can best describe as thrillers designed to be read as literature. He's named Raymond Chandler, Dashiell Hammett, Eric Ambler, and Graham Greene as influences. Uh, William Cook in *The New Statesman* considered James Bond to be the culmination of an important but much maligned tradition in English literature. As a boy, Fleming devoured the Bulldog Drummond tales of Lieutenant Colonel H. C. McNeil. And the Richard Hannay stories of John Buchan. His genius was to repackage these antiquated adventures to fill the fashion of post-war Britain. In Bond, he created a bulldog, a bulldog Drummond of the jet age. Have you two heard of Bulldog Drummond?
1: Uh, only through Fleming. I've never yeah. read them.
3: Yeah, me too. Um, but it very much does seem like that's the case. He's basically got that, and he's modernised it. So a lot of the stories, in fact, most of the stories, um, his creations are are based on individuals and operations um, during his time in Naval Intelligence Division. You know, stories have been passed around and also first-hand experience that he's got, uh, events that he's read about from the Cold War. Um, So, for example, the From Russia With Love plot, which uses that Spectre decoding machine to trap bond well that's got its roots in the german enigma enigma machine which he was heavily involved with at um bletchley in in terms of trying to to locate that so yeah that's where all the influences uh, are coming from
2: well as well as the influences on the books there's obviously a lot of inspiration he had for the character and there are loads of these there's 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 probably a lot more than i've got here but i've i've got a list of Sort of main influence that is is that people reference when it comes to the Bond character, but it's also quite important to note that some of the some of the influences are more to do with the character of that he was copying, and some had more to do with the the style of the person that he was copying. So uh, a lot of them are naval intelligence um, people. So a, a lot of the um, story aspects of these characters came from people he met during his time in the military. And he uh, admits that uh, Bond was a compound of all the secret agents and commando types I met during the war. So it doesn't specifically give one or two main people. It's, it's just a combination of all the different people that he learned from during that period. I'll go through some of them here. Uh, his brother Peter, who was a behind the lines oper- operations in Norway and Greece during the war. From a looks perspective... We've talked about this many times. Hoagie Carmichael gets brought up quite a bit, just from the the style. Ben McIntyre, who he's, he, he's another one for the looks. He talks about him being a dark, rather uh, dark, rather cruel good looks is the description in the book that matches this this man called Ben McIntyre. He also modelled bits on uh, we've already mentioned in Comrade O'Brien French, a, the spy who he met uh, skiing in Kittsbull. Uh, um, a man called Patrick Dalzell Job, uh, who was a British naval intelligence officer and commando in the war. Bill Biffy Dunderdale, who was station head at MI6 in Paris. And he he certain character traits that he had, he had cufflinks and handmade suits. And he had a, a Rolls-Royce that he was driven around in, which lent itself to the, the style of Bond. Uh, so Fitzroy McLean, who worked in the Balkans during the war and an MI6 double agent called Duskov, uh, Dusko Popov. So quite a lot of those. But probably the most important of them is Fleming himself, because Fleming is often referenced as being uh, almost like Bond in many of his mannerisms. And we, as we all know, one of the issues that he had with Connery is that he wasn't really like Fleming. So um, yeah, a lot is down to self fictionalization
1: Indeed. And when you look at that uh, illustration of, of that Fleming commissioned of Bond for the books, you can just see Fleming there. It's very, uh, it's um, and you look at Hoagie Carmichael; he looks very Fleming esque as well.
2: When you're writing a book like that, you really has to be largely about you because it's so detailed in the thoughts and the views that they have on things that it's largely got to come from him, him and his 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 style. But of course, he 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 did live a very similar life to. Bond, so it's not surprising.
1: Yeah, and a lot of the details comes from his own personal experience as well, doesn't it? So he writes about the the places that he's been and the people that he's yeah. met and the sort of foods that he eats and all that sort of stuff.
2: Well, perhaps more so than most writers, because a lot of his books are largely based on very specific individual things that he'd done. Like octopus is just about him going swimming in the sea, isn't it? It's not really a story about anything else. So yeah, it's it's very they're very specific to his life and. A lot of stuff that went on, in, in, especially in like Jamaica and places.
1: So the themes of the book, Fleming himself noted that these books were written for warm-blooded heterosexuals in railway trains, airplanes or beds. And generally, the Ian Fleming James Bond books are fast paced, as we mentioned, meticulously detailed. He'll spend like whole like pages just describing what someone's having for breakfast. And they're also extremely violent as well. So that violence is is something that uh, was people would criticise the books for at the time. But obviously, is a cornerstone of what we know about spy literature now. There again, like I said, about Britain's declining position in the world. They talk a lot about the post-war world that the the, the books are set in. There's a lot of uh, you know Germans on the run and all that sort of stuff. It talks a lot about comradeship. So that's something obviously he would have been very aware of. And he was someone that kept a very close circle of friends um, in different circles. So he was very sort of someone who who cherished uh, friendships between friends and colleagues and things like that. He talks a lot about the English and American relations as well. He was very cutting about Americans at the time. He felt that um, the way that he writes about Americans in the book is sometimes quite disparaging. A lot of his books are about good versus evil. Obviously, having come out of the other side of World War Two, that's quite an obvious one that uh, would have come through. And then obviously there's a lot of sex and violence and alcohol and living the high life in it. So yeah, I mean let's let's dive into the books that he wrote from here on, because obviously we've done Casino Royale, but he wrote a number of other James Bond books as well.
3: Yeah, so he was already working on the second novel, Live and Let Die, before Casino Royale had already sold out its print run. So his second one was published in 1954, so pretty swiftly, and much of this novel does draw from his personal experiences. Uh, the the opening. Bond's arrival at the New York airport. That's inspired by Fleming's own journeys in the forties and the fifties. Similar to Casino Royale, live and let die was well received uh, generally by the critics. Uh, the print run was 7,500 for this and it, it did sell out. A second print run was then ordered within the year. Um, so the popularity is, is increasing. He intended for this one to have a, a more serious tone than uh, the debut a book that he he released, and it was the like you said, the good versus evil was very much what he was going for in this one. And the the original title for this one was the Undertaker's Wind, and this was to act as a, a metaphor for the story. And it describes one of Jamaica's winds that blows all the bad air out of the island. Not um, a fart, then? No, not a fart. <laughs> <laughs> so yeah, now he's got he's got two two novels under his belt. Well, then there's a little bit of a blip in the
2: Bond storyline, which is in the shape of Casino Royale, the first time a Bond story was set to screen. Have Have of you seen this? I watched about three minutes of it. It's the American one, isn't it? It's Barry Nelson, isn't yeah, it? So, yeah, so it's Barry Nelson. You can, you can watch the whole thing on, on YouTube. I watched probably about 50% of it and I couldn't watch any more. It's a live 1954 television adaptation of, of the book and it was shown It's shown as part of the American TV series Climax. It stars Barry Nelson, Peter Law and Linda Christian and Nelson's American and he, so he plays Bond as an American spy working for the Combined Intelligence Agency which is the CIA if you work that out but not the actual CIA. It's the actual prints of the, the film disappeared for quite a while and they were uncovered by a film historian called Jim Schoenberger in 1981. And apparently the original copies were, uh, the original film was in colour or the TV show was in colour, but the only copies we've got now are black and white. And MGM got the rights to this. I don't know if they wanted it, but they got the rights to this as well as the uh, 1967 Casino Royale film when that changed hands. In In the show, it's, Pretty. I mean, it's basically like a, a live theater production. Pretty hard to watch. It's 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 nothing like you'd expect from Bond. He the story loosely follows the the book, but it's all very TV dramatized. Uh, James Bond goes to meet uh, Clarence Leiter, and he's given a mission to defeat the uh, chief at Baccarat, and because they want Le bosses, the chief's bosses, Soviet spy masters, to uh, kill him um and then he meets Valerie Mathis um who is Lashifer's girlfriend i won't go into the full story cuz not a lot happens but basically um they they he wins money off of Lashifa, and then he ends up in a room with Lashifa, and he uses uh, Valerie Mathis as a sort of hostage but bond ends up shooting him it's not very interesting but it's well worth watching just for a little bit you wouldn't want to watch the whole thing but um <laughs> yeah it didn't do very well and wasn't it wasn't a a good uh, point in the bond series and certainly didn't um make anybody want to make more of those of those shows
1: but but a big deal for fleming because he'd got his character on screen but i think uh, obviously he he was always wanting bond to be a film character rather than well, a tv well you can character. imagine
2: his view on this uh, firstly because you know his view on americans yeah and how strict he is about the characterization of Bond. And he, and he was very particular about who he wanted to do it. So I can't imagine he was particularly pleased about having an American guy playing uh, playing his main character. But yeah, obviously, he probably was quite pleased to have it on screen, but it wasn't the way that he imagined it, I, I would have thought.
1: His next book, After Living That like Die, was Moonraker, which was published in 1955. This was written the year before in 1954. And... He, by 24th of February that year in Jamaica, he'd written 30,000 words. It's a unique book in the James Bond world. Do either of you know why? No. Because it's set entirely in England. Mm. Um, and the reason it's set in England is because he had had discussions with a film producer about making the f- books into a film. And he felt that having a story that was just in England would make it a cheaper book to film. So he set it entirely in England. Uh, Fleming's copy of the book has the inscription. This was written in January and February 1954 and published a year later. It's based on a film script I have had in my mind for many years. He felt that like the idea for the film had been too short for a full novel and that he had to more or less graft the first half of the book onto my film idea in order to bring it up to the necessary length. So, the villain in this, Hugo Drax, is named after Drax Hall, which is a sugar estate down the coast from Goldeneye in Jamaica. Drax tells Bond in the book that the British are useless, idle, decadent fools hiding behind your bloody white cliffs while other people fight your battles. So this sort of indicates how Fleming felt about England at this point in his life. After having won the war, he felt that England was a country that was in decline. So it's also unique in that Bond in the book doesn't get the girl. Gala Brand, the the, the female character, she declines Bond advances at the very end of the book and tells him that she's getting married. So she's she's one of the only female leads in the books who hasn't actually made it into the films. Although, as we discussed on Die Another Day, she did sort of inspire Rosamund Pike's character, Miranda Frost, but she was changed at the last minute. So some alternative titles for the book were The Moonraker Secret, The Moonraker Plot, The Inhuman Element, Wide of the Mark, The Infernal Machine, Mondays Are Hell, Out of the Clear Sky, and Hell Is Here. So some good like fleming S titles there. Mm. Maybe maybe two or three. Some of them are a bit bit ropey. I like Hell is Here. I like that. And Out think, of the Clear Sky. Good. I thought that was quite good. So yeah, that book was published by Jonathan Cape in 1955 and then was later that uh, in December that year published in the US under the title Too Hot to Handle. So not a good title.
3: Not at all. It's, um, it's quite f- funny, the juxtaposition between the fact he set it entirely in England for the book but the namesake, the film, set on the moon. It's, it's just... not in the, not on the moon. No, but in it? no, but yeah, you know, <laughs> you get the point. He's gone, he's low key for for purpose of a film. But when they made the film, they went to space. <laughs> you know.
2: Well, I'm trying to think if that title, because obviously it's got connotations of actual the film Moonraker now. But mm. if if that film didn't exist, would that be quite a nice
3: title? Possibly. Yeah. Probably not. No, it might be, because yeah. but I think it's because you, you think think of the film straight away. You can't hear that title and not so next next assignment up is diamonds are forever and that was published in 1956 in 1954 ian fleming he read a story in the sunday times about diamond smuggling in sierra leone and he thought this story would be good enough for, for a new a new bond novel and he had a meeting with an old friend of his called Sir Percy St- Silito, uh who was the ex head of MI5, and just for, for get some research and understand the world of diamonds, basically. So, uh, what I enjoyed about this is um, in the book, it says Bond is still aged under 40, he's just returned from two weeks leaving France, he's in pretty good shape. Again, the juxtaposition between the film version. <laughs> <laughs> So he wrote this at GoldenEye in January and February 1955. And then once he'd completed it, he wrote to his friend, Hilary Bray. I baked a fresh cake in Jamaica this year, which I think has finally exhausted my inventiveness as it contains every single method of escape and every variety of suspenseful action that I had omitted from my previous books. In fact, everything except the kitchen sink And if you can think up a good plot involving kitchen sinks, please send it along speedily. So he then returned to London. He had his his manuscript. He submitted it in March that year and he settled on the title because he'd seen an advert in the American version of Vogue that said a diamond is forever. So, um, He didn't even come up with the title of this one, really. It was an ad campaign. And then it was published uh, on 26th of March, 1956. From November 1956, the sales of Diamonds Are Forever and all the other novels all rocketed following the visit of the the Prime Minister at the time, Sir Anthony Eden. He visited GoldenEye to relax after the Suez Crisis. And um, this was heavily reported in the British press, which led to basically free publicity for the Bond novels. Yeah,
2: there's a lot of crossover at that because um, I've got reference to that as well. They, they talk about that being the one of the reasons why From Rushary of Love, which was his next book, did so well. So From Rushary of Love, the fifth Bond book, it's, for, uh, by all accounts, it's one of the books that Fleming wrote which is closestly followed in the film. So the, the actual storyline to um, from Rush with Love is very close to what happens in in the film. It centers around Smirsch, but the slight twist in it is that um, what Smirsh want to do because Bond has killed a number of their operates, the Sheaf, Mister Big, uh, and Drax, is that, that they want to kill him, but also disgrace him, discredit him as a result of that. So they issue a death warrant to to get Bond, and they as bait they use the the. Uh, What's the the name of the the main character? Tati,
1: Tatyana Romanova.
2: That's it, yeah. So they use her as bait and as well as the Spectre um, decoding machine to get him to come out in the open so that they can get him. Uh, And in the book, much of the action takes place in uh, Istanbul and on the Orient Express, as you see in the film. Uh, It also has uh, a character in it called Kerim, although in the book he's called Darko Kerim. Uh, He's the head of the British Services station in Turkey. And... The film basically uh, so the book basically deals with the east-west tensions um surrounding the Cold War and the the decline in power of Britain following the, the world War two so that follows on from what you're saying about his view on the on, on Britain at that time um, and apparently it was largely inspired the especially the locations um, from a visit that Fleming did to Turkey for the Sunday Times for the uh, an Interpol conference which he returned By using the Orange Express, which um, obviously had a massive impact on the film, he also accounts for uh, a story uh, by um, about Eugene Carp using the Orange Express, and he was a intelligence uh, officer who was based in Budapest. Uh, And then in 1950, he. Journeyed on the Orient Express, and um, he had loads of papers on him about spy networks in the Eastern Bloc. So Soviet assassins were on the train, and they drugged uh, the the conductor, and they killed Karp in a railway tunnel south of Salzburg. So that story and his interest in the Orient Express and the location is the basis of this of this book. And also, apparently, Fleming had a long-standing interest in trains. Because in 1927 he was part of a near fatal crash. Um, so he had a bit of a fascination with with trains from that point. It did uh it got quite good reviews when it was released at publication, and and that's partly because of this visit that Anthony Eden did to uh the GoldenEye State. And yeah, so it did it did pretty well. It was serialized in The Express as part of uh, an abridged version and then as a, a comic version as well. So yeah, Fleming altered this book quite a lot and he, he, he spoke to raymond chander about this and this is quite similar to what you were saying brendan he says my muse is in a very bad way i am getting fed up with bond and it has been very difficult to make him go through his uh through his tawdry tricks so it constantly sounds like fleming's always disappointed by the point he's at with his writing with these books uh he rewrote the end of the novel in 1956 to make claire poison bond and the i think the focus of that was that he wanted to make it so that he could finish the book at that point and not and finish with bond so he he'd written it in so that he didn't necessarily have to, to write another one obviously he did and then um he spoke to journalist and writer matthew parker on oh, no. so there's a writer and journalist called matthew parker and he wrote about this and he said that the um the bond's physical and mental um, ennui is a reflection of fleming's poor health and low spirits when he wrote the book And according to Charlie Higson, who talked a little bit about this, he says that uh, from Russia of Love, the author finally hits on the classic Bond formula and he happily moved into his most creative phase. And then he did another bit of writing as well in the same year uh, called The Diamond Smugglers, which is a non-fiction fiction piece, piece of work that he wrote. And this was based on a series of interviews that he did over two weeks with a chap called John Collard, which I'd never heard of before. Have you heard of him? So he's a member of the International Diamond Security Organization and it was headed by a chap called Sir Percy Silito, who was the ex-chief of MI5. And it's all about the diamond smuggling uh, that was going on in Africa, where um, it's estimated that 10 million pounds worth of gems were being smuggled every year out of South Africa. It goes into depth about what, what was happening in there, and um, it's based uh, partly on a series of articles or an article that he wrote in the Sunday Times in 1957. So it's a book just kind of expanding on the world of diamond smuggling and, and what this chap had to do with it. So it was one of only two non fiction books that uh, Ian Fleming wrote. His next book, the
1: next fiction book, was Dr. No. Uh, he wrote that book in 1957, but it was in fact based on a, a screenplay that he'd started writing for a producer for a proposed television show that we'll talk about in a minute called Commander Jamaica. So anyway, Dr. No was written in, in 1957. He had gone to Jamaica with Anne and his son Casper and also Anne's elder son Raymond And it was around this era that Ian began his affair with Blanche Blackwell. And actually, one of the boats in Dr. No is named after Blanche. So Matthew Parker, who you've just mentioned there in his book GoldenEye, describes Dr. No as the most fantastical, gothic, melodramatic and at times, frankly, even knowingly over the top. And Fleming himself called it very cardboardy and need not have been. A lot of it is about the complacency of the British in Jamaica and he even predicts sort of an uprising by the Jamaicans in the country, and they will eventually go on to, to get independence from Britain. But that was all sort of the germs of that started to be sown around this time. So Krabke in the book uh, was inspired by a trip that he took with Ivor Bryce to a flamingo colony in the Bahamas. And Dr. No was inspired by Fu Manchu, uh, the character. The book introduces major Boothroyd as Bond's armorer who will cut go on to become Q in the films and th- he is named after a man called Geoffrey Boothroyd who wrote to Ian Fleming he was a Bond enthusiast and a gun expert and he told Fleming that his choice of firearm for Bond was wrong and Boothroyd suggested that Bond should swap his Beretta for a Walther PPK and that made it into the book and so that is where Bond's famous gun came from, from this guy Geoffrey Boothroyd. And this is the book that was dismissed by the New Statesman as a book of sex snobbery and sadism. That really is, that's a criticism but also is very accurate. That's the three things that really define Bond in the books. Uh, so this book, Dr No was released in 1958 as a hardcover and would obviously go on to be the first book to be adapted as a film.
3: So then another slight detour. Four years after that episode of Climax, the Casino Royale one, CBS decide to have another crack at bringing Bond to TV. And so they hire Fleming to write 32 episodes over two years that feature... The character of Bond. And so he began outlining these stories and, and, and making plot points, but it never materialised. But because he'd created stuff for the character, he put a few of the ideas back into the Bond books. So some of the episodes that he'd come up with, the short stories went into his uh, collection in for Your, for Your Eyes Only. And then another, another treatment for an episode called Murder on Wheels was used by and adapted by Anthony Horowitz in a chapter of the Bond novel Trigger Mortis, which was released in 2015. So there's obviously there's, there's some stuff that to to be mined there still. I guess I I'm not sure how much of the 32 episodes he, he got down to doing. But yeah, a shame that, again, seems to not, not be having much luck getting uh, Bond on the screen at this point.
2: No, but he still continued with the books. Uh, and in 1959, he did Goldfinger, which... Again, is quite close to the the film version. Uh, it's surrounding um, Goldfinger, but in Goldfinger, the book, he is connected with Smursh, which he isn't, obviously, in the film. And the other big difference as well, of course, with the Goldfinger book is that he plans to steal the gold reserves from Fort Knox, whereas in the film, he irradiates them. The name Goldfinger, I think we might have mentioned this before, he comes after an architect called Erno Goldfinger, and when this Erno Goldfinger found out that he'd used his name in it. Um, he threatened to sue Fleming, but it was eventually settled out of court. I think he ended up with a few free copies of the book <laughs> and something else. But also, Goldfinger, the round of golf that he he plays in the film, uh, Sean Connery plays, was based on a, the tournament in 1957 at Berkshire Golf Club, where, where Fleming partnered with a chap called Peter Thompson, who was the winner of the Open Championship, which he then used as a, a, a concept uh, to to put into the book. When it was released, it actually did quite well, probably off the back of all the other ones. But it was it went to the to the top of the bestseller lists when it when it came out. So you can see that the Bond series had really hit its stride where Fleming was concerned, and it it started to to generate quite a bit of momentum, which leads quite nicely on to the fact that it was made into films later on. The title of the manuscript that he originally wrote was called The Richest Man in the World and apparently few alterations were actually made to the story before it was published, so it wasn't heavily edited like some of the early ones that he'd done. Fleming apparently had a bit of a fascination when it came to gold. He was a collector of Spanish doubloons. He also had, as we we, we, know, we all know, he had a gold-plated typewriter, which he had created from the Royal Typewriter Company, but he never actually used it. And he also wrote with a gold-tipped ballpoint pen. He talks about gold. The theft of gold quite a bit in a lot of his stories, but I think that's probably quite a big point at the time. I seem to remember most old films have a reference to people stealing gold. It was quite a big deal around that that mm. period. One of the things he did when he was pulling together the research for Goldfinger is that he sent a big questionnaire to the Worshipful Company of Goldsmiths, which was a, a company in London who kind of work across the purity of 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 precious metals and he just had loads of questions about gold and and its properties and how it was created and the industry behind gold and the smuggling behind it so that's where he got a lot of the information from at the time for for that book he talked about the the goldfinger novel and said it was the easiest of the bond books to write but he thought he had exhausted his inspiration for (laughs) plots again constantly but he still seems to find time to do other ones come up with some new ideas. He spoke to the writer uh, William Plomer, who I've never heard of, that Goldfinger was to be the last full-length folio on Bond. Though I may be able to think up some episodes for him in the future, I shall never be able to give him 70,000 words again. So yeah, that was another point where he was losing the will to write Bond.
1: Right, his next book... Having exhausted all his full-length story ideas was a collection of short stories, and that was For Your Eyes Only, which was published in 1960. This is a collection of five short stories, From A View to a Kill, For Your Eyes Only, Quantum of Solace, Risico, and The Hildebrand Rarity. And four of these stories were adapted from plots for the television series that wasn't filmed, and the fifth was one that Fleming had written but not published. So the From View to a Kill was originally intended to be the backstory for Hugo Drax, the Moonraker villain, and had originally been called The Rough with the Smooth. And that was actually going to be the title of the book before For Your Eyes Only was chosen as the title of the book, the collection of stories. The story For Your Eyes Only was originally entitled Man's Work, and Fleming also considered calling it Death Leaves an Echo, And this is one of them that was based on an episode of the TV series. And this is the one that includes the Havelocks, uh, the family that would feature in the film for your eyes only. Quantum of Solace was based on a story that Blanche Blackwell had told Fleming about a real life police inspector. So in return for inspiring the story Quantum of Solace, Fleming bought Blanche Blackwell a Cartier watch. And that was actually published, Quantum of Solace, as a short story in Cosmopolitan magazine. And it had illustrations by Bob Peake. Uh, Risiko. that short story, provided the inspiration for the characters in the films, Christassos, Colombo, and Countess Liesel. So all those names came from Risiko, the story. And then the final, the Hildebrand rarity, that was inspired by a trip that Fleming took to the Seychelles and was published first in the Playboy magazine in, in March 1960. The characters Milton Crest and the Wave Crest boat, which later featured in Licence to Kill, come from this story, the Hildebrand Rarity. And do you know which Daniel Craig film references this short story? It's a good one. It's Spectre. So in Spectre, when towards the end where Bond returns to London and goes to the safe house with M, the nameplate on the door is Hildebrand Antiques and Rarities. So there you ah, go. That yeah, is clever. a nice, that's, oh, that's nice. probably the
2: best bit of that film.
1: Yeah, it's a blink and you'll miss reference. But um, yeah, I remember it being quite an exciting thing to spot when I first saw it. But um, yeah, so that oh, gives me a reason to rewatch it. Yeah. <laughs> hey, it's better after you've seen No Time to Die. Trust me, it's more enjoyable.
2: Have you um, rewatched it? Yeah,
1: yeah, yeah, I rewatched it with, uh, with oh, Matt and okay. Ma- with 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 the missus before we went to see No Time to Die, because I don't think she'd seen it. And uh, I found it quite enjoyable that after having seen mm. No Time to Die, so... Oh, right. And there's a lot that anyway. Let's forget that. Uh, for your Eyes only was published <laughs> in April 1960, and this is where things start to go a bit crazy for Ian Fleming.
3: Yeah, just gonna dial it a couple of years back. Take you back to mid 1958, um, and this is where Ian Fleming and Ivor Bryce they start talking about the possibility of a Bond film. So later on in that year, get your klaxon out. You got the klaxon ready. Ah. <laughs> Bryce introduces Ian Fleming to a young Irish writer director called Kevin McClory. And so the three of them, alongside Ernest Cuneo, who I think we've spoken about before, yeah, they they form a partnership called Xanadu Productions. It doesn't actually end up being anything of note, but in May 1959, they meet up and they come, they thrash out a story outline, which is based on a plane full of celebrities with a female lead called Fatima Blush. Kevin McClory is obsessed with underwater and he wants to make a film that includes a lot of underwater stuff. And so they they spend a lot of time, they're going back and forth, the story changes, 10 different outlines at, at one point, the treatments and the scripts are changing all the time. Different titles that were proposed, Spectre, James Bond of the Secret Service and Longitude 78 West. So Ian Fleming wanted to work with Kevin McClory because of McClory's film, The Boy and the Bridge. This was the British entry for the 1959 Venice Film Festival. So that film was released July 1959 and it wasn't received very well at all. It was a flop at the box office. And at this point, Fleming loses interest and doubts McClory's ability whatsoever uh, at all. So, we're getting towards the end of 1959 and Fleming is is not spending as much time on the project. He's, he's disinterested. And McClory gets Jack Whittingham, who is a screenwriter, to take part in the writing process. November 1959, Fleming is travelling around the world for the Sunday Times, going to places like Hong Kong, Japan, USA. He gets to USA and he meets with McClory and Ivor Bryce in New York. And McClory tells Fleming, Jack Whittingham has completed a full script, ready to shoot. And so they go back to the UK in December 1959. Um, They all meet up and Longitude 78 West, Fleming considered it was a good script. He was happy with it. Apart from the title, which he changed to Thunderball. So this is where things start to get a bit dodgy. (laughs) Fleming decides to write the novel Thunderball between January and March 1960. And it's based on that screenplay that is written by himself, Whittingham and McClory, published in March 1961. And the print run of 50,000 copies sold out really quickly. So this this all sets up a new phase with the Bond novels. So it, it injects a bit of uh, the, the passion that had gone before, you, as we've been talking about, Ian Fleming has lost... interest in writing Bond and he thinks he's used all his ideas but this is a a new Bond phase and it introduces Spectre the special executive for counterintelligence terrorism revenge and extortion and this is the first time and they're basically in this novel they're trying to hijack nuclear bombs. So as with the previous novels that we've talked about this one comes from Fleming's experiences when he was on a health farm uh, the, he, the one he went to was Enton Hall Health Farm, but he changed the name. He changed it to Shrublands, which was the name of a house owned by a friend of Peter Quenell's, his friend. And so this novel introduces Blofeld and his name comes from Tom Blofeld, who was a, a farmer based in Norfolk. And he was a friend of Ian Fleming. And Tom Blofeld's son is... Henry Blofeld, yeah, yes, who is a sports journalist in the world of cricket, a very we well-known one as well.
1: We did a whole episode on Blofeld,
3: so you can go back and revisit go, that. Go, yeah, <laughs> yeah,
1: head, head
3: back there and listen to that. But yeah, he's opened a can of worms because he's written that he's written the book based on McClory's ideas. So what happens next? I'm not going to go too much into depth of this
2: because I think when we eventually do a McClory <laughs> episode, that's going to be pretty pretty weighty. Yeah, but in March 1961, McClory got hold of an advanced copy of Thunderball. So him and Whittingham obviously looked at it and thought, well, this is this is our work. We did a lot of this. And what ensued was a very... They petitioned to the High Court in London for an injunction to stop the publication of the book. And after two court actions, Fleming and McClory settled on a deal out of court so that the book could be published. But McClory gained the... Uh, literary and film rights to the screenplay of Thunderball so he got the rights to as we know remake that film later on but Fleming retained the rights of the novel as long as he acknowledged in the novel that it was based on the screen human that he did with, with that Kevin McClory Jack Rittenham um, did with him so that's all I'm going to go on about that now because there's there's a lot more to the details of that court case but I don't want to go through it all again when we, we cover McClory but yeah that obviously has massive implications later on for the Bond series
1: it really does and another big part a big uh, story that happened around this time that had a big impact on the Bond story is that in 1960 when he was flying from Jamaica Fleming flew into Washington to meet up with a friend called Oatsy Lighter, and Oatsy Lighter also knew Jack JFK J- Jack Kennedy so Oatsy had given JFK a copy of Casino Royale when he was ill. And five years after that, Jackie Kennedy, John JFK's wife, gave a copy of From Russia With Love to Alan Dulles, who was the head of the CIA. And from that point onwards, JFK and Alan Dulles of the CIA would exchange bond books with each other. They'd read the book, write notes in it and hand it over to the one to read it. And they'd write notes and pass them back and forth. Anyway, while Fleming was driving in the car with Oatsy. She saw the Kennedys, JFK and Jackie, and she pulled up the car over and introduced them to Ian. And when she said, this is Ian Fleming, John F. Kennedy said, James Bond. So he knew who Fleming was because he was a big fan. So they shook hands and they invited him over to have dinner with them last night. He actually had the Thunderbolt manuscript with him in his luggage at the time because he was just flying back from Jamaica. And at this dinner with JFK, Kennedy actually asked Fleming, as a spy writer, what he would do about Fidel Castro. And Fleming had this harebrained scheme about like dropping in leaflets about uh, disinformation about Castro. And Kennedy was that taken with the idea. He actually tried to arrange a meeting between the CIA and, and Fleming to set something up. But actually, it never never came to pass. But from that moment, Fleming became very good friends with the Kennedys. And he sent every book that he then published to JFK, Robert F. Kennedy, and also their sister Eunice Shriver. And in March 1961, in the issue of Life magazine, the magazine ran a story about President Kennedy's 10 favourite books. Uh, he listed from Russia with Love as his ninth favourite book. And this just kicked off the bond boom in America. This was just honestly, you cannot imagine the impact this had on the sale of bond books. And historian Mark White said Fleming should have paid Kennedy a percentage of the royalties. And he really did owe a lot to Kennedy for his endorsement, and he did actually later include a line about Fleming in the book *The Spy Who Loved Me*.
3: This was a massive time for Fleming, but all was not well. No, not at all. So, in April nineteen sixty-one, just before the second case regarding Thunderball, Fleming had a heart attack during a meeting at the Sunday Times. So, yeah, his health is clearly deteriorating at this point. How old would he be at this point in his life? The early fifties, so, yes, yeah, and so while he was recovering, one of his friends, Duff Dunbar, what a great name, gave him a copy of the Tale of Squirrel Nutkin by Beatrix Potter, and he suggested that you takes the the time to write the bedtime story that he used to tell his son. So while while he was having this time off and away, he got to doing it and. He wrote to his publisher, Michael Howard, and said, there is not a moment, even on the edge of the tomb, when I'm not slaving for you. And we'll uh, we'll touch on in a bit what, what that led to.
1: Yeah, worth saying that he was a heavy, heavy drinker and a heavy smoker, and that was contributing to his ill health.
3: Yeah, and he was told a lot not to, you know, that he needs to ease up. Like
1: 70 cigarettes a day.
3: Yeah, it was... Absolutely That's rare. a lot, isn't it? That's yeah. a lot, and a box. That's too That's much for for met anyone. But he refused, didn't he? He he just he, he wanted to live the life he wanted to live. He just wasn't interested in in taking heed. Well, shortly after that, the movie world started
2: beckoning, and things started happening in in the selling of the Bond stories to the big names in the business. And I won't go into too much again about this because we've talked about some of this quite a bit and we'll be talking a lot more about some of these bits. But Casino Royale was sold, the feature film rights was sold to Gregory Ratoff, who we've spoken about many times in this podcast, who's the Russian director as, as well as actor. And he got the rights for $6,000 in the in the mid-1950s. And at this point, according to L- Lorenzo Semple Jr., Ratoff was developing Casino Royale as a film about a lady, James Bond, who, which was originally played by actress Suzanne Haywood. He didn't keep the rights to that, it eventually got sold to Charles K. Feldman, who, as we know, created Casino Royale in 1967. And then in June 1961, Fleming sold a six-month option on the film rights to the published and future James Bond novels to Harry Saltzman, who obviously then became involved with Cubby and they set up Eon Productions. So things really getting heated up over this period and that's where it all really started.
1: So in 1962, Fleming published a book, The Spy Who Loved Me. This was written in, again in, in Jamaica in January, February 1961, despite his ill health. It's completely different to all the other James Bond books. It's, it's narrated by a, a woman, a character called Vivian Michelle, who Fleming actually credits as the author of the book. Uh, in in the, A woman? In the book. A woman. <laughs> um, and Bond doesn't actually appear in the book until the final third of the book. It's the most sexually explicit uh, of the books, and this is where the famous or infamous line about how Fleming writes that all women love to be semi-raped. And it's the shortest manuscript that Fleming produced for a novel. It's only 113 pages long. It's another sort of George versus the dragon type of story, as Raymond Benson puts it in his book, uh, The Bedside Companion. Fleming said, I tried to break away from my usual formula and it took quite a beating from the critics and his friend Ivor Bryce called it the single lamentable lapse in the quality of his work. And it was published in April 1962 and the critics hated it. The Glasgow Herald said uh, his ability to invent a plot has deserted him almost entirely and he has had to substitute for a fast moving story. The sorry misadventures of an upper class tramp told in dreary detail. Wow. Yep. Uh, Fleming was so taken aback by the response that he forbade the publishers from publishing any further editions. He said he also refused to allow them to print a paperback version. Um, and he also removed the right to adapt the story as a film. And when the film came around, they were only allowed to adapt the title, the story. I think we covered some of that when we talked about Anthony Burgess. So, uh, yeah, we did a bit of that on on B. But when he wrote to his publishers to sort of explain his thinking behind The Spy he Loved Me, Fleming said, I had become increasingly surprised to find my thrillers, which were designed for an adult audience, being read in schools and that young people were making a hero out of James Bond. So it crossed my mind to write a cautionary tale about Bond. To put the record straight in the minds of particularly of younger readers, the experiment has obviously gone very much awry. So this was never published in paperback until after Fleming had died and his widow, Anne, allowed a paperback version to be published. And yeah, it is a weird Fleming book.
3: So later in 1962, Dr. No is filmed and released, the first Eon Bond film. And uh, we did a whole special on this. So I'm literally just going to do a couple of sentences. And if you want to find out more, then then delve back into the special that we recorded. So yeah, yeah. The shooting took place really close to Fleming's Goldeneye house, and he he visited the set a, a few times. And there's a, some nice stories that we we covered regarding what happened in that as well in the podcast. But after the film was released, the sales of Fleming's Bond novels really increased. And in the seven months after *Dot Snow* was released, 1.5 million copies of the novel were sold. So it's um, it really propelled him into being a millionaire pretty quickly, all this success. And and that that continued throughout the 60s. Just unfortunately, he he didn't get to enjoy a lot of it. But um, yeah, in 1961, half a million books have been sold and then it rose to 6 million in 1964. So yeah, it's just become an absolute phenomenon.
2: And then during the filming of From Rush With Love, I don't have a lot on this really, Fleming popped by the set to see the film being made and there's a there's a cameo appearance apparently although I don't think it's I think people de- still debate whether it's actually him but apparently in the train scene he's standing outside the train wearing grey trousers and a white sweater I haven't checked this
1: have you seen this no but we'll look at it more in more detail when we get to F for for, for, for from Russia with love I'm sure
2: good good yeah okay but that what you can find online is Lots of rather nice pictures of him on set, including publicity stills of him stood next to the Orient Express, which are quite nice. But yeah, that's him popping by the set.
1: Yeah. I think he would warmed a bit more to to Connery by now. So while Dr. No was filming down the road, Fleming was hard at work at uh, GoldenEye writing on Her Majesty's Secret Service, which was published later in 1963. And, the first draft of the novel was 196 pages long, and it was called "The Bells of Hell." And Fleming later changed the title after being told about a 19th-century sailing novel called "On Her Majesty's Secret Service," which had been seen at Portobello Road Market. So I thought it's got quite an interesting mm. change of title. I thought
2: it was just a that's just a phrase, isn't yeah. It? I Honor thought so.
1: Yeah. Mm. So it's the second book in the Blofeld trilogy. Some interesting things to note about this book is that Bond visits Vesper's grave in this which happens in No Time to Die, mm. obviously. Bond is given his Scottish ancestry in tribute yes. to Fleming. And most famously, Bond gets married in this story, which obviously later becomes a part of the film.
2: So this was a result of visiting the set and
1: getting used to Connor Must have been, yeah. This mm. book also, as noted by Matthew Parker in the, his great book, sees Bond drinking and smoking very heavily. And the character is often tired and breathless, obviously, just like Fleming himself. So this was published in 1963 and it was the best received Bond book by far. Richard Maybaum, the screenwriter who went on to write many of the Bond films, says it's by far the best novel Fleming ever wrote. And the Observer newspaper said it's certainly the best Bond for several books. It is better plotted and retains its insane grip until the end. And it was the first book to be released after the films had hit the cinemas. And so by the end of 1963, it sold over 75,000 copies.
3: Yep. And then the last novel in the Blofeld trilogy, You Only Live Twice. And this was actually the last book completed by Fleming before his death. He died five months after the UK release of this one. And this uh, the actual story is set eight months after the murder of Tracy. And... The story was written after the uh, the release of Doctor No. So Bond's personality now begins to also shift and sort of heads towards the Sean Connery style, giving Bond's got a, a sense of humour and doubling down on that Scottish ancestry as well. A critic for The Spectator said, Ian Fleming has taken a hint from the film of his books and is now inclined to send himself up. I'm not all sure that he is wise. But You Only Have Twice was published 16th of March 1964. There were 62,000 pre-orders for the book, which was a huge increase over the 42,000 pre-orders for the previous book. So yeah, the Bond craze is well well and truly happening now, mid-60s. Another aside from
2: the world of Bond. In
3: 1964,
2: Fleming was approached by a producer called Norman Felton, who... Was He worked on spy series for television shows. And Fleming worked on several ideas for a show called The Man From Uncle*, which I'm sure you both know very well. Uh, and apparently he came up with the names for uh, Napoleon so- Solo and April Dancer. I don't know if that name was actually used in the series. I don't know the series well enough to verify that. But there were major complications with this because Fleming had to withdraw from the project because Ian Production said they don't. Want to, they didn't want him associated with basically and they didn't want the project overlapping with the Bond films and they didn't want to avoid any legal problems as well. So that was around stuff like using the same story ideas in Man from Uncool and that were used in the, those films, etc, etc. I mean, there's not a lot to this really because he didn't really do a lot on it apart from coming up with a few ideas. But the the most information you'll find about it is the conversations around just removing his name from having any association with it. There's a really long article on spy command features, which I've never seen before, but they've got a like a quite in-depth overview of the whole conversation that went on via letters between these this production company and between Ian Fleming. It's very drawn out. Like really the whole thing, this whole discussion is just going, well don't just keep keep his name out of it. So it gets a bit convoluted. But eventually he's kind of removed from that from having association with the man from Uncle, And I don't think he really did a lot anyway, so it's not like a big deal. But yeah, if you're really interested in that, Spiker Man features.
1: I think uh, he sold the rights for $1. I think that's a, a famous yes, part of the story, that, isn't yeah. it? Yeah. Yeah. Uh, which that was quite interesting. All right, here we are. Fleming's death. So... <laughs> <laughs> let's Very let's give that yeah. some gravitas. Okay, so here we go. Back in England from Jamaica in 1964, Fleming's health had really, really deteriorated. And his friends said he was like a gloomy, fragile figure. At Easter that year, he was hospitalized with blood clots on the lungs and his chest pain worsened despite being on a lot of different medications. He was still drinking and smoking quite heavily. In July that year, Fleming's mother Eve died. So that was obviously a strain on Fleming himself. In August, Anne wrote to her daughter saying Ian's life from now on hangs on a thread. And doctors told him that his life depended on giving up, smoking and drinking, but he didn't. So then in August, he travelled to a meeting at a golf club near Sandwich, where he was, I think, one of the members of the board. And on the 11th of August, he had lunch at the golf club and then dinner with Anne at the Guildford Hotel. And shortly after eating, he collapsed and an ambulance was called and he was taken to Canterbury Hospital. He died at one thirty a.m. the next day from a massive hemorrhage on his son Casper's 12th birthday. And his last recorded words were an apology to the ambulance drivers saying, I'm sorry to have troubled you chaps. I don't know how you get along so fast with the traffic on the roads these days. So famous last words. Um, he probably had a drink in his hand at the time, <laughs> didn't he? Wow. Fleming is buried at the churchyard of Sevenhampton near Swindon. So, I mean, that's that's basically the end of Fleming as the man. But after his death, there were a number of his works that were posthumously published.
3: Yeah. So if you remember, I talked about that children's novel he was working on. Um, that gets released in 1964 titled chitty chitty bang bang the magical car and i'm sure i'm going to go on uh, i'm going to say everyone listening to this has heard of that i mean it's it's iconic even if you've not seen it you've heard you know the name chitty chitty bang bang and obviously it's it's a successful film it's also a, a west end musical so he'd written it for his son and it was published in three volumes originally so October 1964, November 1964, and then the third one in January 1965. But then the three volumes were put together in July 1968, and it was released as one complete book. And so Fleming had taken inspiration from some racing cars called Chitty Bang Bang, which were built by a guy called Louis Zaborowski in the early 1920s at Higham Park. And Fleming, he'd known Higham Park, he'd been there as a guest, and the chairman of Robert Fleming & Co. Walter Wigham had owned it, so he, he he was aware of all that. And so this was the, the last book that he wrote, and he didn't get to see it published. The reviews were, on the whole, pretty positive. Alexander Muir in The Daily Mirror said, Chitty Chitty Bang Bang would make wonderful Christmas presents for everybody's young ones, declaring that they were thrilling cliffhanger adventures. I've not actually read the books of, of either of you. No. Nope. No. Nope. No. But you've seen the film, right?
1: Yeah, obviously. Oh, yeah. Published, uh, produced by Cubby uh, Broccoli, written by Roald yes. Dahl. So a lot of Dahl, action. So Yeah, yeah, loads,
3: yeah. Of, loads of crossover. But yeah.
2: Then we come on to the last of the, the Bond novels written by Fleming, which was The Man with the Golden Gun. So that was published in 1965, eight months after he died. This book was... A little bit different than the other ones in the, in the way that it was actually written and published because he only wrote one first draft of this book, which wasn't the way that Fleming normally wrote. Normally, he'd pull together a first draft, which was basically the bare bones with all the stuff in. And then his real work came around when he edited it and he went through and he added all of his detail in. And that's where the book got most of its sort of Fleming style from. And because of that, it was a bit shorter. It was it, a lot of the extra detail that he would put in in that second draft made it a lot bigger so there wasn't a lot to the man with the golden gun book and at the time he wasn't very happy with it when he was writing it um, and he considered rewriting the whole thing but Ploma, who was the uh, publisher i think at the time he said it was fine for publication so it went across to him so the book follows James Bond after he's been, he's presumed dead after his last mission in Japan. Uh, he comes back to Britain via the Soviet Union, but he's been brainwashed to try and assassinate M. Eventually he's cured by uh, MI6. And then he goes to the Caribbean to try and find Scaramanga, who's involved in the whole thing, who is of course a man with the golden gun. In Man of the Golden Gun book, he's a Cuban assassin who is, believed to have killed a load of British agents, and he's famous for using a gold-plated Colt 45 revolver, which fires silver-jacketed solid gold bullets. And he... Interesting part of the... Have you, either of you read this? Yeah. yeah. So the, uh, one of the interesting bits is that he works under Scaramanga as a character called Mark Hazard. I've not read this, so this is all new to me. In the first time in in the whole of the the Bond series, you hear Bem's full name, Admiral Sir Miles Messervy, KCMG, and apparently Scaramanga was named after George Scaramanga, who was an Etonian contemporary of uh, Ian Fleming's, and they were meant to be sort of nemeses at school. So that's why he threw that name in. Uh, according to Henry Chandler, who was the Fleming's biographer, he said, the novel received polite and rather sad reviews, recognising that the book had effectively been left half finished and as such did not represent Fleming at the top of his game. And that's quite a common theme with the, reviews of the book and the the, the people that spoke about it was, who were just a bit sad about it really. They, they Everyone knew it wasn't a particularly good book but because it came posthumously and they knew that the situation in that it was written it was just a bit of a, a sad release. So that's Nightmare Gone gun.
1: Then we come to the very final things published uh, by Fleming although written at other times and it is the short story collection Octopussy and the Living Daylights which was published in 1966. This was a collection of short stories and it contained, originally when it was published, it just contained Octopussy and The Living Daylights. But then subsequent editions also included the stories The Property of a Lady and 007 in New York. So Octopussy had been written in 1962 and then serialised by the Daily Express. And then The Living Daylights had appeared in the Sunday Times in 1962. Living Daylights had originally been titled Trigger Finger. thought it was quite good. And when it appeared in the Sunday Times supplement, it was under the title of Berlin Escape. Property of the Lady, that had been written in 1963, had been commissioned by the auction house Sotheby's for use in their annual journal, The Ivory Hammer. and was published in November 1963 and then later in Playboy. Fleming didn't think the story was very good and he actually wrote to the uh, head of... Sotheby's and refused payment because he considered the story to be so lackluster and then the final thing 007 New York had actually been commissioned in 1959 by the Sunday Times he in fact I didn't mention this earlier his second nonfiction book which was Thrilling Cities had been published in the same year as Honor Majesty's Secret Service but yeah when he'd been writing Thrilling Cities he traveled through New York and wrote a short story 007 New York which is told from Bond's point of view and it's Bond, basically talking about New York, and has a recipe for scrambled eggs. So if you want to know how Bond makes scrambled eggs, it's in there.
3: Excellent.
1: Yeah. Egg- excellent. Excellent. Yeah. Um, <laughs> so yeah, that was first published in 1963. I'm editing that out. Yep. <laughs> <laughs> so that, that's it. That's basically Fleming's or all, all of Fleming's written works as Bond. The Bond stories would continue with the continuation novels, which we won't talk about here. But uh, yeah, you know, we've got many distinguished writers who have written future Bond stories in the style of Fleming uh, with mixed results. But uh, yeah, there we go.
3: So now just to touch on what is a tragic tale. His son, Casper was affected by his father's early death. And so much so that his mum, Anne, wrote to a friend, Evelyn Waugh, Uh, And said, Casper hates me and talks of little but matricide. What should I do? According to Ian Fleming's biographer, Andrew Lycett, Casper began to take an unhealthy interest in guns whilst at Eton. In one letter, he wrote to his uncle about a flourishing black market in guns. And one boy was offering to sell him a Luger. When he was 16, a loaded revolver was found in his room at Eton. The police were called and discovered that he owned five automatic pistols. He got fined £25 at the local youth court. And so after Eton, Casper went to Oxford, but he dropped out after two years. He said shortly after leaving, it wasn't the life for me, it was pretty hard work. I didn't take any exams. I don't like them. The reason why I left are quite complicated, but I left of my own choice. I certainly feel no nostalgia for university life. And so when he was twenty-one he was able to access his trust fund left to him by his father. And he used the money, sadly, to fund his growing drug habit. And his half-sister, Fionn said that she said, I didn't want my children to get in the swimming pool with him because his body was covered with needle pricks. In 1974, he made his first suicide attempt during a visit to GoldenEye, which he had inherited after his father's death. He took an overdose and then swam out into the sea. He was saved by his friends who called for a helicopter and had him rushed to hospital. During the following year, he had some spells in a psychiatric unit in Swindon uh, where he was treated for depression. And by September 1975, he seemed like he was, uh, he was fine. A friend of the family, Lady O'Neill, said he was such a nice boy. We had three boys and they actually absolutely adored him. The week before he died, when he came to visit, he really seemed happy. He would go searching for arrowheads. He was an archaeologist. That was his great love. And so at the end of the visit, Casper, he went back to his mother's flat in Chelsea. And he was found the next day, uh, October the 2nd, by a neighbour who found his body in bed. And with a note in his pyjama pocket, it said, if it is not this time, it will be the next. And three empty tablet bottles were by his side. His mother was told the news and she had to be sedated. And Lady O'Neill said, it was dreadful when he died. He'd got in with the crowd at Oxford who took drugs. I don't suppose that helped. Casper was very clever, but he suffered depression. A lot of the family did. His mother, Anne, she was beside herself after her son's death. She drank heavily to numb the pain. And sadly, she died from cancer in 1981. Casper is buried with his parents in the parish of Sevenhampton. So it's a it's a really sad end to the story.
1: Really is, I mean, he must have been really like well yeah. uh with having such a famous parent parents, even at Eton yeah. and uh, I imagine he just got mercifully mercilessly bullied for being the son of James Bond creator, I'm sure mm-hmm.
2: yeah, well, so we're not ending on on a, a low point, I'm going to just run through the portrayals of Fleming on screen, and I think I don't think I've seen. Many of these, actually. There's, there's quite a few. There's a lot of documentaries that feature Fleming. I'm not going to talk about those, but I'm going to talk about the fictionalised versions of Fleming on screen. The one that's classed as probably the best portrayal of Fleming on screen is in The Secret Life of Ian Fleming, which is a 1989 film which starred... Charles Dance. It was it. Charles Dance, yeah, well done. Yeah. So he's... After looking through all of the uh, articles covering this, I think Charles Dance is seen as the, the best of the the people that have covered Fleming, and it just looks at all his wartime ex- exploits, romantic adventures, and then eventually coming up with James Bond. Uh, it was directed by Don Boyd, who's quite a big Scottish filmmaker, and yeah, uh, it's also starred a very young Christopher Waltz in it, which is interesting. Interesting, uh, as well as Julian Fellows. So that's a, that's a nice bit of knowledge about Christopher Waltz starting his James Bond career. It's really hard to get hold of, though. It's not been released on DVD, I don't think, and it doesn't really exist anywhere apart from eBay VHS tapes. So uh, not many people have seen it. In 1990, there's The Secret Life of Ian Fleming. This one isn't as widely well-received as that one. It stars Jason Connery as Ian Fleming, and it's just not meant to be a very good uh, portrayal of Fleming. Again, I haven't watched it. I'm probably not going to watch it. In 2005, there was Bondmaker. Shout if you've ever watched or heard of no, any of these. No. So Bondmaker's a look at the uh, Ian Fleming whilst uh, during his time as uh, naval intelligence. It's a docudrama, and it talks a little bit about why he wrote the Bond novels. Uh, it was played by Ben Daniels in that, and there's the angle of it. There's, there's a lot of internal first-person narrative sections in it um, but apparently it lacked a lot of drama and seems like a pastiche more than an accurate portrayal uh, this was an interesting one that I found Age of Heroes have you heard of that? Nope. nope. this looks very bad so this is a film that came out in 2011 I think and it's about his his 30 AU unit uh, uh, the commando unit and it's he's played by James Darcy but the people in the commando unit are played by Sean Bean and Danny Dyer. Nice. So, wow. So I imagine if Ian Fleming ever saw these films, that one's going to be a low point for him. Danny Dyer in that. At least he wasn't playing Fleming. I think this is like the second um, episode
1: in a row we talked about Danny Dyer.
2: Yeah, I think we should make it a thing. <laughs> Danny Danny Dyer for Bond. Yeah, Danny Dyer for Bond. i love that. Nobody would argue with that. And then this one is actually one that a lot of people saw. It was Fleming, the 2014 miniseries, which stars... Dominic Cooper. Uh, Dominic Cooper, yes, ahead of me. So that was, I think, yeah, four-part series which goes into a lot more depth, but it's heavily dramatised. I think a lot of people said at the time that there it was it was embellished, and they came up with a lot of things to sort of drag out the storyline and make it more dramatic, as opposed to just being a a biopic of him. But as I said, there's also loads of documentaries uh, about Bond, including some by a friend of the podcast, John Cork, who obviously worked with eon for a lot of the dvds and produce some uh, some really good documentaries for that so if you're interested in finding out more that's where to go
1: well that's about wraps up our episode on ian fleming what an epic epic episode thank you for listening the a to z is going through the people behind the james bond films in a to z people seem to listen to these specials more than the other episodes so thanks for listening to this one but why don't you check out some of our other episodes as well because there are there's lots of interesting information about the people behind the films not just Ian Fleming. The next episode will be uh, will be joined by a very special guest, someone who has written for James Bond himself, Mr. Raymond Benson will be joining the James Bond A to Z podcast to talk about his research into Ian Fleming and all the people that he met while writing The Bedside Companion. So please join us next week for that episode. It's going to be a great show. But if people want to email us, how can they get hold of us? Podcast at jamesbond8z.co.uk if you want to find us on social media to tell us about Dolly's Braces, Brendan,
3: Oh, please don't. At James Bond A to Z on Facebook, Instagram and Twitter. Well, all
1: that remains is for me to say. James Bond will return on the James Bond A to Z podcast. Thank you for listening.
3: Thank you. Ciao.
2: The James Bond A to Z podcast features Tom Butler, Brendan Duffy and Tom Wheatley. The podcast was produced by Tom Wheatley with music by Tom Ingram and artwork supplied by Helen Dolly.